I rejoice in the fact that God is the God of truth, of all truth, and his truth exists in every, I believe his truth exists in every area of life and thought, in politics and science, history, and we need to seek it and to find it. I think I should just, by way of personal introduction, to say a little bit more about myself. I, um, after having read PP at Oxford, um, really went into the world of politics and political ideas from very, well, really ever since leaving Oxford. And um, my world really is the world of political ideas. I edit a political journal. I'm general director of the Freedom Association, which is a, a secular political organization, though there are quite a lot of Christians who belong to it. And before I became, I became a Christian almost 20 years ago, in 1976, largely through reading C.S. Lewis. And before I became a Christian, I was very much um, very influenced by the ideology that I'll be telling you something about this evening and trying to criticize from a Christian point of view. So it, it, it's, it's good to be here, and I'm grateful for the opportunity of talking about this subject. Well, what is libertarianism, and why is it important? I don't know what that word conjures up uh, in your mind, libertarianism. Obviously something to do with liberty. But libertarianism has a very definite meaning now. It represents a very powerful ideology <coughs> on what might be vulgarly described as the political right, both in the United States and in this country. It's principally an American phenomenon. And before I talk more about its history, just giving you that by way of background, I'll just describe or state what the major propositions or principles of libertarianism are, so that you know what sort of ideology it is. It's a very eclectic philosophy and political movement and ideological movement. It covers all sorts of different strands, but practically all the strands of libertarianism would agree with the following propositions. The first one, the individual is an end in himself and possesses natural rights stemming from the requirements of his nature as a thinking and active being. The individual mind is the essential, is the source of all creativity and the fountainhead of human progress. Liberty is the essential condition of all human progress and achievement. The right to personal liberty is absolute so long as its exercise doesn't infringe the equal rights of others. Private property rights are also absolute because the individual has an unlimited right to the product of his labor. Free market capitalism is the only economic system compatible with freedom and the individual's natural rights. The role of the state, libertarians believe, should be strictly limited to the protection of life, liberty and property and to the enforcement of contracts. Taxation for any other purpose than the financing of what used to be described as the night watchman state Taxation for any other purpose, particularly welfare or redistribution, is theft. In the areas of sex, marriage and the family, there are no moral or cultural absolutes whatsoever. All forms of sexuality, marriage, family structures and lifestyles are equally valid and permissible so long as they result from freedom of choice. And finally, since individuals have an absolute right to do what they like with their lives, their bodies, and their property, as long as they respect the rights of others, there should, in a free society, say libertarians, be no restrictions on the consumption or sale, at least for adults, of drugs, pornography, video nasties, and other perverse substances and forms of entertainment. There is also a strong tendency among 
libertarians on both sides of the Atlantic, but as I say, it's primarily an American phenomenon, though it's increasingly influencing conservative circles in this country. There is a strong tendency among most libertarians towards atheism and what I can only describe as theophobia, hatred of the very concept of God. Now, atheism needs um, no definition, but what do I mean by theophobia? Many libertarians are offended by the notion, the Christian notion of God, because they regard it as a form of authoritarianism. They believe in the total autonomy of the individual, and they are offended by the idea that, as individuals, we are accountable to a higher power. And they tend to have a very hostile attitude towards Christians, towards Christianity. They, all they can see in the history of Christianity are the bad side, the church, the you know, the Inquisition burning people at the stake because they read the Bible in English. Uh, all they see in Christianity, in the history of Christianity, are the crimes of Christendom, persecution, intolerance. Inquisition persecuting Galileo. And so they have a view where the, individ in the individual mind and freedom is, and science and rationality is on the one hand, and superstition, bigotry, intolerance and oppression and the church is on the other. That's the mindset of most libertarians. Not all of them. There are some Christians who are libertarians who object to the union of church and state on libertarian grounds, and they have a lot of justification for that view, and who are rightly critical of the crimes of the church down the centuries. But most libertarians tend to be atheists and have this tendency to theophobia. Well, that's so much by way of introduction as to giving you some idea about the principles and the thinking that tend to be common to libertarians. A brief word about the history of the libertarian movement. Really, libertarianism is, uh, comes out of the, what you might call the classical liberal tradition the Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-American classical liberal tradition. Now, I don't want to waste too much time going into splitting hairs about definitions, but essentially you had really from the 17th century onwards the development of the liberal tradition, first of all in Europe, very much linked to Protestantism, the belief that was affirmed at the Reformation that the individual conscience uh, must judge Scripture and we must understand Scripture for ourselves and have a personal relationship with God. And Protestant ideas about congregational government also combined with this emphasis on the rights of the individual conscience helped to create a political movement uh, particularly in 17th century England, which opposed divine right, the divine right of kings, regarded all power as something held, um, something that is a sacred trust, and the use, for the use of which one is accountable to God. That was associated with the idea that the law is above the king, which was in fact a medieval idea, it's part of Christendom. And then out of that general if you like, spiritual and philosophical background, there then emerged the, the liberal tradition in its fullest sense, uh, affirming the rights of private property, the work ethic, um, the need to limit the power of the state in order to preserve freedom, particularly the rights of conscience. And that tradition was very strong in what became known as the science of political economy in the 19th century, starting particularly with Adam Smith, and that tradition, that liberal tradition, of course, um, was greatly developed in the United States uh, during the, in the years leading up to the Declaration of Independence and the War of Independence. And so the founding fathers of the American Constitution, uh, the leaders of the American Republic in its earliest years, men like Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, the authors of the Federalist Papers like Madison, Jay, and Hamilton, all these men had a very strong notion of the rights of the individual and the need to limit the power of the state, 
They all believed in a strong work ethic. Most of them were Christians, though quite a lot of them were also deists. And that is essentially the background to libertarianism. That's the culture from which libertarianism has emerged. And many of the things libertarians believe in are common, of course, to the wider classical liberal tradition in the broadest sense of that word. But libertarianism in its extreme form really emerged in the 1950s in the United States. <clears throat> I suppose you could argue that some of it originated in the opposition to President Roosevelt's New Deal policies uh, to get America out of the Great Depression in the 30s. There was a group of American thinkers who were concerned about the growth of state power under President Roosevelt. And anyway, in the 50s, it really took off. And two thinkers in particular were very influential, both of whom have died. One, an American woman called Ayn Rand, who, in fact, was a political refugee from Russia, and really her whole life and all her thought is one big reaction to communism, really, at the psychological level. But she was called Ayn Rand, and she wrote um, some very famous philosophical novels, one called The Fountainhead, um, about a, a, an architect who won't, refuses to compromise his standards of architecture and who, who, who holds out for his um, creative talents and vision of architecture against the opposition of, 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 of his generation. And that was called The Fountainhead. She wrote another philosophical novel called Atlas Shrugged, um, which is about the men of the mind going on, in other words, entrepreneurs, intellectuals, scientists, people who are crea great creative individuals going on strike against um, a, an American socialist government of the future and refusing to work and allowing the country to collapse around them to teach the surrounding society a lesson. And she also wrote um, a number of non-fiction books, two of which are Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal, which came out in 1967, and around that time, too, The Virtue of Selfishness, a New Concept of Egoism. Ayn Rand, however, and her objectivist movement, as it is called, it was, is only one very particular strand of American libertarianism, of a particularly idiosyncratic kind, but one with great emotional power, which has influenced a lot of young people. The other important author and thinker of the American libertarian tradition is called Murray Rothbard, and he wrote a very influential book in 1973 called For a New Liberty, the Libertarian Manifesto. In fact, shortly before he died, he had a slight break with the libertarian movement and apparently had some second thoughts about it all, which I have yet to read about. So I can't bring you completely up to date with the thought of Murray Rothbard, but he was a very brilliant economist and thinker. And in this book, The Libertarian Manifesto, you can really read the essence of what libertarianism is all about. And I thought before going into that part of my lecture, which is, uh, begins to be a critique of it, what is good and what is bad about this movement, and looking at it from a Christian point of view, I thought I'd just quote you a few paragraphs from Rothbard's book um, on libertarianism. And incidentally, just for your information, the libertarian, there's, there's an organization called the Libertarian Party, which put up presidential candidates in the United States in 1973, 1972, and has put up a candidate in every subsequent presidential election. But the libertarian movement is very, very broad-based and consists of foundations, academic institutes, bookshops, as well as this political party. Anyway, this is what Rothbard says uh, about libertarianism. The libertarian creed rests upon one central axiom, that no man or group of men may aggress against the person or property of anyone else. This may be called a non-aggression axiom. Aggression is defined as the initiation of the use or threat of physical violence against the person or property of anyone else. Aggression is therefore synonymous with invasion. If no man may aggress against another, if in short everyone has the absolute right to be free from aggression, 
then this at once implies that the libertarian stands foursquare for what are generally known as civil liberties, the freedom to speak, publish, assemble, and to engage in such victimless crimes as pornography, sexual deviation, and prostitution, which the libertarian does not regard as crimes at all, since he defines a crime as violent invasion of someone else's person or property. Furthermore, he regards conscription as slavery on a massive scale. Then after Rothbard refers to these positions as being considered leftist on the contemporary ideological scale, he says, on the other hand, since the libertarian also opposes invasions of the rights of private property, this also means that he just as emphatically opposes government interference with property rights or with a free market economy through controls, regulations, subsidies or prohibitions. And so Rothbard goes on. And so a very important part of libertarianism is the belief in laissez-faire capitalism, the, 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 the night watchman state, the idea that there is no role for government in welfare and all taxation other than to provide essential law and order or to finance the armed forces or the law courts or the police is theft. No individual, the state does not have the right take from one individual or group of individuals to give to another. Well, that, in essence, is libertarianism. And it is quite influential now among the conservative youth movement in this country, partly because young people are always searching for, you know, answers to the meaning of life, always searching for values, at least those who are interested in ideas. And what tends to happen if they don't become Christians is that something fills the vacuum. And um, in, among younger conservatives, what is largely filling that vacuum, not entirely, but among many of them, is this ideology of libertarianism, which has links, as I said, with the classical liberal tradition, which is European and American, but particularly with libertarianism. Now, what is there in libertarianism that is true and that Christians can agree with? Well, first of all, I believe that because individuals are made in the image of God and that God gives us the gift of reason and free will and we are, as individuals, the objects of his love, I believe it is true that individuals are ends in themselves and do therefore have God-given rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. God-given rights, that is, in relation to the state, rights that the state has no right to take away from us. We have no rights in relation to God. He is the creator. We are his children. We are his creatures. We owe him everything. We have no rights in relation to God. But I do believe, from a Christian point of view, that individuals are ends in themselves, and they do have god given rights. And of course the authors of the American Declaration of Independence, the architects of the American Constitution, the great classical liberal thinkers of the 18th and 19th centuries, particularly in Britain and the United States, most of them were Christians. And when they talked about natural rights, that's really what they meant, God-given rights. Secondly, I think libertarians are, uh, are right to value freedom because freedom is essential to moral growth unless we have the possibility of choice we cannot grow as people we cannot learn from our mistakes we cannot grow as people unless we have choice unless we have the opportunity of either going the right way or the wrong way i also believe that freedom is necessary to the pursuit of truth and of knowledge how do you discover truth if you're not free to search for it, to compare alternative ideas, alternative lines of research? That was the great argument of, 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 of Milton, of course, the great Puritan poet and thinker and writer of the 17th century. That was Milton's argument in defense of the freedom of the press. It was necessary to the pursuit of truth. It was, of course, also the argument of a non-Christian of John Stuart Mill in the 19th century in his famous essay on liberty. So freedom is necessary and valuable for the pursuit of truth. I also believe, I also think it's right that, that, that individuals do have a right, though not an absolute one, they do have a right to the product of their labor. 
that's obvious, it's obviously just that, that you, you do have the right to the product of your labor and therefore to private property. And private property, of course, is specifically sanctioned and protected in the Ten Commandments. I don't believe that that right to private property is an absolute right. The libertarians are wrong to say it's an absolute right, and I'll come back to that later on. Um, but there is a right to pr private property. And it is true that freedom is essential to productive achievement. So unless individuals are free to use their talents and opportunities, um, you won't get much in the way of production and achievement in a society. Another reason why freedom is important is because, and this is particularly important from a Christian point of view, and some libertarians, like Rothbard, do stress this particular uh, fact, though other libertarians do not. Because human nature is imperfect, inherently flawed, or as Christians, as we would say, rightly fallen, power does corrupt people. And as the great Lord Acton said uh, in the last century, absolute power has a tendency to corrupt. Absolutely. Of course, it's not, a, it's not um, uh, an accident that Lord Acton was a Christian. So because human nature is fallen, power does corrupt. And therefore, there is a need to restrain the power of the state in order to prevent the abuse of power and in order to prevent tyranny. It is also true that the record of the state, the record of government through the centuries has been terrible. Most of history is a story of war, oppression, corruption, persecution. And the progress of uh, freedom, of, of humanitarianism, of everything that we think of as being good has been directly linked to the success in curbing the power of government. And much the same could be said about the history of the church, that where church and state have come together and the church has attained temporal political power, it has invariably tended to abuse that power. Whether you think of the church in the Middle Ages, whether you think of the Inquisition in the 16th and 17th centuries in Catholic Europe, whether you think of Calvin's Geneva, there has always been a tendency, because Christians, like everyone else, are fallen, we spend our whole lives growing in Christ, and hopefully at the end of our race we have grown in Christ, but we are sinners, we remain sinners, we remain fallen, we remain frail, and therefore Christians are as subject to the corruption of power as non-Christians. And that is why when the church has obtained excessive power through the centuries, it has tended to abuse that power as much as non-Christian rulers and organizations. So for all those reasons, much of what is contained in libertarian ideology, indeed what it has in common with the tradition of liberalism, of classical liberalism, is true and valid and we must not forget it or throw the baby out with the bathwater when we come, as we are now about to come, to what is wrong with libertarianism. So what is wrong with libertarianism, particularly from a Christian point of view? Well, the first thing that is wrong about libertarianism, about this ideology I've been describing to you, is that it has an idolatrous tendency to make freedom and personal choice an end in itself, whereas freedom is a means to other ends. Freedom is valuable for the pursuit of truth. Freedom is important to curb the abuse of power. Freedom is important so that we can grow in virtue and the knowledge of God, but it's not an end in itself. Now, a lot of libertarians will acknowledge that truth, but what tends to happen in practice and you see that reflected in many of the policy positions favored by libertarians, is that, is that they, they, in practice, tend to regard freedom as an end in itself, and whatever is the re result of personal choice is, for that reason, all right. And that leads to a kind of moral and cultural relativism, to this idea that sort of, you know, in the area of sex and culture and popular culture, all cultures, all lifestyles are equal. And uh, the result, of course, is disaster, that we have been, the disastrous trends that we have been seeing on both sides of the Atlantic and indeed in all advanced 
Western countries, the, permissive, the ideology of the permissive society, and what, what does that lead to? The destruction of the family, of marriage and the family. And what does the destruction of marriage and the family lead to? Juvenile delinquency, crime, falling standards of educational performance, rising teenage suicide rate, and then drug addiction, and all the horrors that have become familiar to us. Also, interestingly enough, this relativism is destructive of liberty. Because if a culture begins to be established in which it becomes embedded in people's minds that they can do anything they like with their private lives, then it becomes possible for people in politics to believe that they can do anything they like with power. If you think of totalitarianism or tyranny as permissiveness with power, you can see the psychological and ideological link. So libertarians are wrong to argue that all lifestyles, all sexualities are equal. They're not. What's wrong with homosexuality? The bodies of men and women are complementary. That tells us something about the perverse nature of homosexuality. The family is the fundamental unit and structure of society. The union of man and woman in marriage is essential to the, not only to the procreation, but to the bringing up of the young. So we know, for all these reasons, as well as the word of God, that homosexuality is wrong. And therefore, one cannot, we cannot ac accept as Christians this libertarian idea that as long as a lifestyle a form of sexual behavior, a form of marriage, if you like, like gay marriage, is the result of voluntary choice, therefore it's all right. No, it's not all right. And interestingly enough, this relativistic libertarian attitude towards marriage and the family and sexual lifestyles reinforces um, hostility to the idea of natural authority without which no society can survive. And what I mean by natural authority is the idea that not only is there an objective hierarchy of standards and values and, a mo and an objective moral code of right and wrong, but some people are wiser than others, that it's right and proper and natural that children should obey their parents, that school children should look up to their teachers, that there, are, there is a hierarchy, if you like, of wisdom. There ought to be a hierarchy, a natural hierarchy of wisdom and authority in society. And without that sense of hierarchy, society fragments. And it's ironic that where natural authority is undermined, a vacuum is created which leads to anarchy, and then the only way of curbing that anarchy is to use the power of the state in the most brutal fashion. So the result of a society where you're not allowed to inflict any the mildest forms of corporal punishment on children, like a slap, uh, you know, you end up producing delinquents who have to be um, dealt with by riot police. That's where it leads, that's where the re rebellion against natural authority leads a society. It actually leads it in the direction of tyranny, not in the direction of freedom. The libertarian idea that there are victimless crimes is also false. Now, before going into this point further, I just want to refer to John Stuart Mill's essay on liberty, which came out in 1859. In that essay on liberty, and John Stuart Mill was not a libertarian, he was a classical liberal, he tried to work out a rule of thumb by which societies or governments could determine whether or not particular forms of individual behavior ought to be interfered with by the law or not interfered with by the law. And so he developed the idea that any action or behavior that affected other people was legitimately subject to legal regulation, but that forms of behavior or activities that didn't affect other people directly ought to be in a private province, if you like, of the individual, not interfered with by the state, whether or not we approve or disapprove of that particular form of behavior. 
And that's a sensible um, rule of thumb, as long as you remember that it's only a very rough rule of thumb. And of course, in real life, there's a gray area of activities which inevitably affect other people. So an adult's freedom to consume hardcore pornography is going to affect the rest of society if as a result of that consumption of hardcore pornography, the adult in, in, in that particular case goes out and rapes a woman or has children who read this pornography because it's lying around the home. The police, as many of you will know, often find that sexual offenders are inveterately consumers of hardcore pornography. So the libertarian idea that, that, that any attempt to control pornography as censorship and a violation of individual liberty uh, and unjustified is simply nonsense. Of course it's justified to censor pornography because of its effects on the rest of society. And I find it rather grotesque, really, that the arguments that were used by great men like Milton and John Stuart Mill to defend freedom of thought and freedom of speech and the freedom of individuals to get to grips with important uh, theological and philosophical issues should be used to justify um, perverse forms of entertainment. I don't think that watching video nasties or watching pornography has anything to do with freedom of speech. The libertarian um, belief that taxation is theft also will not stand up to critical examination. Unless you, if private property rights are not absolute, and I don't believe they can be justified as being absolute, then it follows that there are other moral considerations and obligations which may limit the right to private property. I believe that, um, that helping others in ways that help them to that increase their opportunities, to develop their talents, to make the most of the opportunities of life, like you know, giving a child an education who would otherwise not get an education because his parents have got no money, that that kind of um, state help enhances opportunities, the opportunities individuals enjoy, benefits the rest of society and therefore is morally justified. And therefore I think taxation for um, redistributive or welfare purposes is justified. Though there are limits to it. If you overdo the redistribution of wealth and the levels of taxation, you'll kill the, golden, the goose that lays the golden egg. Or you'll interfere too much with the rights people legitimately enjoy to the fruits of their labor. One can have an argument about if state action is justified, what sort of action ought it to be? I think there's a very good case for saying that it is one thing to say that the state has the right to levy taxes in order to pay for the health care or schooling or education of people who would otherwise not be able to provide for themselves despite their best efforts. It doesn't necessarily follow from that that the state should monopolize the provision of education and schooling uh, or organize it in a particular way. That's just an argument for saying that there is a right to tax in order to help those who otherwise would not be able to help themselves. So taxationist theft is not um, a morally justifiable position. But the real weakness of libertarianism, uh, and I want to spend a little time on this before coming to the final section of my lecture, which is the alternative Christian biblical perspective on liberty and natural rights. The great philosophical weakness of libertarianism is that the indifference of libertarians to God, the fact that most of them are atheists, deprives their ideology of liberty of any conceivable, justifiable foundation. And let me illustrate what I mean by that. All their argument depends on the recognition of the value of liberty. And their belief in liberty is based on the belief that individuals have natural rights, that because we have reason and free will and because we need to be able to think and act freely in order to live and in order to prosper and in order to use our talents, we have a right to certain freedoms. But if atheism is true and we're simply 
the product, and our minds and all our thinking are simply the product of the random movement of atoms, and we're adrift in a meaningless, mechanistic universe, how can there be any justification for this idea that individuals are precious or have rights? That is a moral perception. And if atheism is true, there is no such thing as an objective moral law or objective moral values. Our, thought, our thinking processes and the results of our thinking processes have no more significance than the wind and the trees. Indeed, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting logical and philosophical contradiction at the heart of atheism, which is that if atheism is true, we're simply the product of mindless movement of atoms. We have no reason, therefore, for believing in the truth of any of our conclusions or that there is any such thing as truth and, and therefore we have no reason actually for believing in the truth of atheism either. It leads to a complete, a complete um, sort of circle of contradiction and nihilism. So the first, that's the first great weakness of libertarianism philosophically. It has no to use a, a long philosophical word to do with the theory of knowledge, it has no epistemological foundation. And of course, if there is no, uh, and then in fact, then, then look, look, look more closely at, at the whole subject of moral values, because this brings me now into the Christian perspective on liberty. What is the link between moral law and liberty? If Respect for the individual and therefore for freedom is a moral perception. That moral perception can only be justified and recognized as a valid, objective moral perception if one acknowledges that there are such things as moral values. There is a moral code. There is an eternal law of right and wrong. If that isn't true, there's no philosophical justification for freedom. You can't say freedom is important to the pursuit of truth because there's no such thing as truth. You can't say freedom is important because the individual is an end in himself, because that's a moral perception, and if there are no moral absolutes, that isn't an absolute either. So if there's no objective moral law, we're in a situation where might is right. If I'm stronger and braver and cleverer than you, I can get what I want out of life and trample all over you, and that's good enough for me. So therefore, if one cares about liberty, and libertarians are right to care about liberty, they are brought to the foot of that cross, and we are silent. So I think we're tested also to worship, love, and submit to God perfectly and totally, as Adam and Eve were tested. But for us, in a fallen world, after centuries of sin and death, it involved a lot of pain. It didn't involve need not have involved pain for them they had only obeyed also what comes out of the notion of God the creator of course is the idea of stewardship of accountability rulers are accountable for the use of power to God they are accountable for the use of power anyone who is in a position of power in any big organization is accountable to God for the use of power. They will have to stand before God and give an account. They will be held to account. And similarly, we are held to account. We are accountable to God for our property, for the use we make of our property, for the use we make of our talents and opportunities. We are accountable. And similarly, we are held to account. We are accountable to God for our property, for the use we make of our property, for the use we make of our talents and opportunities. We are accountable. And it's interesting that I find in my experience the most important reason why people reject God is because they do not, they are offended by that notion of accountability. They do not realize their creaturely position. They, they haven't grasped it and what it implies. And that leads me to the last part of what I want to say, and then that leaves us about half an hour for questions and discussion, which is exploring the reasons why true liberty only emerges from obedience to God and his law. C.S. Lewis wrote... Um, 
1943, an essay that became very famous when it, became, when it was published as a book called The Abolition of Man. And what Lewis, C.S. Lewis argued in this essay, which was originally about English literature, actually, was that the moral law written on our hearts, only the moral law written on our hearts and our recognition of it gives us freedom. Why? Because the moral law written on our hearts enables us to judge between our instincts, between our impulses. Only the moral law written on our hearts gives us the strength of will to do what is right. So you're tempted, you're a married man, you're tempted to make love to some woman who's not your wife. If you don't have that moral law written on your heart saying this is wrong, you'll give in to that temptation. You won't be free. You'll just be the slave of your immediate impulse, of your lust or whatever. So, actually, that recognition of moral law is what gives us inner freedom. You're walking by a pond or a river or a lake and somebody, child, falls in and you're the only person who can dive into that lake to save that child. Your impulse of self-preservation tells you to go on walking. The moral law tells you you've got to save that child at the risk of your life. Your ability to choose to be brave and not simply follow the immediate impulse of your uh, basest nature is the moral law. So out of that moral law, that inner law, comes freedom. And as we all know, we can tell from, you know, you think of alcoholics. You think of people who are steeped in drugs or in sexual sin. They become imprisoned by sin, no longer able to control themselves, to therefore exercise freedom. And, of course, we know also it's not enough simply to have the moral law written on our hearts. We need the grace of God. We derive all our energies, all our talents from the Lord, all the talents that make freedom meaningful. But we need his grace by the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome the slavery of sin and to release our wills from corrupt and evil motives. And so that is why without God there is no liberty. That is why Paul was right when he talked about the law of Christ being the law of liberty. And to end with a quote... I thought I would read you the words of America's first great president, George Washington, who was a Christian. He kept a, actually a diary throughout his life. And this is what he said, speaking to his countrymen in his moving farewell address as president of the United States, the outgoing first president of the United States, George Washington, on September the 17th, 1796. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Let it simply be asked, where is the security for property, for reputation, for life, if the sense of religious obligation deserts the oaths which are the instruments of investigation in courts of justice? And let us with caution indulge the supposition that morality can be maintained without religion. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. That was once understood by the President of the United States, sunk rather low since then, but it just emphasizes this point about the relationship between God, between our faith, between all that the Bible teaches us about God and man and true liberty. So really, it's just uh, over to you now for questions, discussion, or you might want to rush out and just have a long drink. I don't know what your practice is. Well, we'll let you sit down for a moment, um, Philip. We want to... We asked and prayed at the beginning that our minds would be stretched and our prayers have surely been answered. Uh, and therefore we may need a little moment just to 
collect our thoughts into questions. And I wonder whether we might organise our question time under two headings. I wonder if first we could um, concentrate on questions for clarification. Philip has said a lot. There may be some points that somebody needs to have clarified. And then once we've got the points for clarification out of the way, we can then uh, launch out into uh, deeper discussion and debate on some of the issues that uh, you've raised. But let's deal with the, the more fundamental issues first. Of you know, Something may have been said which uh, you didn't quite catch, you were busy trying to note it down and it slipped by, uh, and you just want to have a point or two uh, restated so that you can grasp it more clearly. Let's concentrate on those first of all, perhaps just for a few minutes, and then we'll launch out into the more meaty issues um, that have been raised. So to pick up a bowling metaphor, who is going to set the ball rolling, uh, first of all? The individual is an end in himself. Um, I mean, I'm just trying to, uh, rather than go... Is that all right if I just give you a short? Very short. Uh, the second one was the individual mind is the source of all creativity and progress. Um, the third, that liberty is the essential condition of all progress. Of course, some of these things overlap. Um, fourth... The right to personal liberty is absolute as long as, as long as it doesn't interfere with the equal rights of others. Um, five, one, two, three, four, yeah, five, private property rights are also absolute. The reason because the individual has an unlimited right to the product of his labor, but if you just, that, that's a useful heading, private property rights are absolute. Free market capitalism is the only economic system compatible with freedom. That was number six. Number seven, the role of the state should be strictly limited to the protection of life, liberty, and property. Number eight, taxation for any other purpose is theft. Then, it's a bit difficult to sum this up, and then in number nine was in the areas of sex, marriage, and the family, there are no absolutes. Whatever, as long as it's a result of free choice, it's all right. And then number, is that nine or ten? Number nine, um, is it ten? Yes, I can't count. See. Number nine? Ten now. Ten. Right. Uh, somebody's uh, been, been paying attention. Um, since individuals have an absolute right to do what they like with their lives, their bodies, and their property, so, sorry, yeah, since they have an absolute right to do what they like with their lives, their bodies, and their property, as long as they respect the equal rights of others, there should in a free society be no restrictions on you know, pornography, consumption of hard drugs, video nasties, etc. Those are the basic points. Incidentally, um, among the sort of free literature that um, George referred to earlier, I've got a paper here called, I mean, it's, it's among the 30 copies that are available. It's called A Conservative Critique of Libertarianism because it was a, I'm, I'm basically con a, con a political conservative, and it was a critique I did of libertarianism at a conference of the Libertarian Alliance. So I went into the lion's den and debated against some libertarians, but many of the points I was making tonight, the philosophical points and political points, are in this conservative critique of libertarianism. I've also got another paper called Rediscovering the Roots of Liberty, which, which also contain some of the sort of material I've used for the history of freedom and the Christian links with freedom and, you know, sort of survey, really, of the 20th century. Um, so anyway, these things are, are free and they're also nothing to do with this lecture, but there are a few copies of um, the journal I edit called Freedom Today, which has an article by me called Conservative Reflections on Liberty. Um, 
So anyway, that you might find that interesting, some of that interest. So have I given you the, the headings you wanted? Yeah. Any other points for clarification? Yes. Could you perhaps explain how uh, an extreme libertarian uh, treats um, inherited property? You talk obviously in a Lockean way about property and resource from labour and having right, right to that, but if you have inherited vast estates that some ancestor got through, con- through, through uh, seizing land and that sort of thing, how, how does a libertarian deal with that? Well, it's, I can't, it's difficult to generalise because different libertarian thinkers have not always handled this issue in the same way. Um, I don't think any libertarian argues that, that property, the acquisition of private property down the centuries, you know, you can draw an unbroken line of legitimate acquisition to the uh, first you know, ancestor. I mean, that's clearly not true. Most of history is a story of plunder and invasion and oppression and so on. But um, I think the, the libertarian thinker who's tried to deal with this the most is a Harvard philosopher called Robert Nozick, who wrote a book called Anarchy, State, and Utopia um, in 19, gosh, about 20 years ago, 21 years ago. And I think he argued that it is difficult to correct um, distributions of property whose origin involved violence centuries earlier because the passage of time will have resulted in at least a string of of some individuals, perhaps even for several generations, who have, if you like, sold that property or acquired other property as a result or added to that property or developed that property by their own efforts. And that if you try and unravel that chain and correct that distribution, you come up against two problems. One is that um, you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily going to be discover who the original owners, who the present owners ought to be, you know, the descendants of the people who were originally expropriated. And secondly, in the, even if you could discover who were the descendants of the people who were originally expropriated, and they might not be alive, of course their line might have died out anyway, you also have the problem that you might actually be, in the end, doing more injustice um, than, you do, do more harm than good because, you know, over 700 years, perhaps the last 100 years or 200 years, the people who've been using that property or adding to it or selling it to get other property have engaged in perfectly free, justifiable, uh, productive uh, activities and why should they be penalised for the sins of their ancestors' centuries gone back and if you try and correct those sins, well, where does it end? You know, as always. So, so there are, there, it's theoretically a lot of libertarians would accept the the, the 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 point underlying your question, but would argue, you know, would would make this practical point. How do you put that right? Of course, you could argue that um, that is you may not be able to do that, but that emphasizes this point, that property rights are not absolute, that in view of the fact that in certain property, a uh, certain area of property, there might have been a chain reactions of unjust acquisitions going back over a period of time, uh, the right of the present owner to that property need not be regarded as absolute. You know, it isn't necessarily a terrible crime against his rights to tax him a bit. I mean, I don't know, but it's a very, very complicated, it's a very difficult subject. You know, yeah. have a starting point uh, for real sort of free markets and so on to work, you really ought to have some more equalising uh, approach to property. That person wouldn't be a true libertarian. Well, that's a... Yeah, you're actually, you're, you're raising another very important, a related but, but, but slightly different issue, which is the really the conflict between, if you like, egalitarians and libertarians, which is that the argument is that, all right, uh, a person has a natural right to the fruits of his labor, but, and he has a natural right to make the use of the opportunities that are presented to him, um, and that individuals are different. They're, they don't have the same characters. Some are abler, more hardworking, more intelligent, wiser, whatever. And therefore, um, you're going to get inequalities in the acquisition um, and distribution of property 
even if you start everybody off on an equal footing in the second or third or fourth generation inequalities will appear um, is there therefore a moral case for the state to redistribute income through taxation or in whatever particular way every generation or at every particular period of time in order to give the next generation an equal start in life now the, well theoretically you could argue there's a case for doing that but libertarians, I think, rightly would argue against that on the grounds that you, you, you cannot reconcile that with liberty uh, in, in two ways. First of all, because, um, because if you try and correct the inequalities in the second generation or the third generation, you're in fact interfering with the freedom of people who've acquired property legitimately to leave it to their children, which is arguably a natural right. Um, you're interfering with those freedoms and also you're giving a lot of power into the hands of the state as to you know, the distribution and use of property. However, um, it is interesting that you have the biblical pattern of the jubilee, the idea that um, after 50 years, you can correct me, George, if I got this wrong, um, property had to return to its original land, had to return to its original owners, and it was a way of preventing excessive accumulations of property resulting in some people having a lot of power and property and other people effectively being their slaves. But, of course, the argument and the merits of that argument will differ depending on whether the economy and society you're living in is mainly a land-based agricultural one, where wealth is much more inflexible and, it, and economics is much more of a zero-sum game than in modern industrialized economies where property exists in a wide variety of, of modes. However, although you know, I can say that on the libertarian side, that does not mean that I accept the libertarian idea that, that property rights are absolute. I mean, I think that it is a good thing, as John Stuart... John Stuart Mill, let me give you an example. John Stuart Mill wrote a book called Principles of Political Economy, which came out in 1848, and which was a sort of Bible of Victorian economics for most of the Victorian period. And he argued, as I argued earlier on, that there is, if, if state intervention can result in an increase in people, some people's opportunities and life chances that otherwise would not occur, and can be, um, you know, then it's justified, morally justified. There is a justification for it. But he then hedged that with various qualifications. He argued that the state shouldn't attempt to do what private individuals or groups could do better. Then he, secondly, even if the state can do certain things or provide certain services better than private groups or individuals, that still isn't necessarily a reason for state action since it might be good for individuals and private groups to undertake those activities in order to grow morally, to learn to handle greater responsibilities. Thirdly, if Nevertheless, it turned out that there was an overwhelming case for state intervention and state action. Then that action and that intervention should not be monopolistic. In other words, the state might intervene in education to educate people who otherwise might not get an education, but shouldn't try and monopolize the provision of schooling. Should always leave room for experimentation and choice and freedom and so on. So, you know, there are, in the whole classical liberal tradition, there's a very wide range of, of policy positions and moral attitudes, and, and libertarianism is just this extreme laissez-faire wing that, um, you know, that, that I was talking about. Michael. Uh, could you tell us <clears throat> where we can see libertarianism best in the present, when the current political scene in this country? I think Libertarianism raises its head in, yeah, in two ways. On the left of our politics, you get all the people who argue, they tend to be more on the left, at least until recently, uh, who argue in favor of um, drug legalization, um, liberal uh, abolition. Well, of course, in the 60s, you remember in the early 60s, Lady Chatterley's lover case and all that, all the movement to abolish censorship and introduce a permissive society came from the left of our politics. Um, but now you have, among part of the youth movement of the Conservative Party, you have people who 
argue in favour of drug legalisation and no restrictions on pornography on the libertarian grounds I've been describing. So you, in, in the sort of area of culture, family, marriage, sex, you see libertarian attitudes and ideas not necessarily expressed by people who, are, who have bought into the full sort of libertarian ideological package, but who buy, if you like, bits of it or express bits of it. Um, you've also got those who are more interested in economics and the rights of private property and who tend to be hostile um, how can I put this tend to be hostile excessively hostile to the idea of the welfare state I mean there is a there is a, there is a I'm being hesitant because the libertarianism gets caught up with the much broader old liberal tradition, which is in 20th century politics has largely become a conservative tradition. Um, and there is a classical liberal critique of the welfare state that has a lot of justification behind it. I mean, there is the argument that, all right, the state, there is a, ta all taxation is not theft, and there is a moral case for taxing people to help others, but that is a very different thing from arguing that the state itself should provide and monopolize schools, provide and monopolize medical care and hospitals. Um, there are many kinds of ways in which people can be helped without the state doing everything for them. I mean, I'm, I read an article, a very interesting article in an American magazine called Policy Review, um, which, is, which is published by the American Heritage Foundation, which is a conservative foundation. And it was an article about the approach adopted by churches and charities in New York to poverty um, about at the turn of the century. And what it was really about was welfare outside the welfare state. And it was very interesting reading the way churches in America, you know, went about helping people at the beginning of the 20th century, the end of the 19th century. What used to happen was that they had various charitable offices or institutes all over New York. And, a, say, a man would, who was in need would come by and ask for help. And the church, the, the people in the church who were responsible for this, would tell, the, tell that man, well, look, while we consider and think about your case and we're still dealing with one or two other people, do you think you could chop some wood for us in our lumber yard, which is next door? And that was a kind of work test to see whether the people who the church was prepared to help were prepared to work, whether they were just layabouts, whether they were really in need and were prepared to help themselves if they were helped. With women, it was they were taken into a sewing room and asked to help do a bit of sewing. Uh, while their case was being looked into. Then the church would try and discover were there any living relatives of this person who was in need who might help that person. And it would track down any living relatives. And if they found them, and often they did find living relatives, distant cousins or uncles or whatever, they would persuade that relative to look after this indigent, this needy family member. Only if that particular person had no relatives, no one in their family who could or would help them, would the church or that charity then help them. And then what they would do, particularly in the harder cases, they would assign a work, somebody in the church to look after that person, to get alongside that person, to help that person get a job, learn a skill, or if they were, you know, if they were, I don't know, sort of, I suppose the equivalent, 19th century equivalent of young single mothers or something, they would be taken into a family a Christian family and they would become part of the family until they could find their feet and and make their way in the world without that help and so and, and you had that in this country too in the 19th century and ex during in Victorian England you know the great age of Victorian capitalism and so on you also had this explosion of uh, private charity the growth of the friendly societies largely organized by the working class to ensure themselves and their families against sickness and unemployment you had Church of England schools springing up all over the place. But most people in this country, most children in this country were educated by, in Church of England schools before the 
1874 Act came in, establishing local school boards, and there's a classical liberal critique which argues that the state, because the state at the end of the 19th century started muscling in and taking over all these activities, they destroyed, they aborted this growth of, if you like, private charity and welfare outside the state and have helped to create a sort of society where nobody looks after their mother-in-law but only someone else's mother-in-law, if you see what I mean. Now, and you can argue, and that's, so there is a, there is a, a perfectly reasonable, I would say Christian-based, critique of the welfare state, which is that the growth of, of state involvement in unwise ways, financed often by excessive levels of taxation on low incomes, has simply resulted in people shifting their responsibilities onto the government and onto impersonal government agencies, responsibilities that were once being shouldered and increasingly being shouldered as the 19th century developed by private individuals, by families, by churches, by private charities, activities which, by people's involvement in them, actually had a good impact on the development and growth of their character. And in fact, the friendly societies in the 20th century uh, were fiercely critical of the introduction of state social insurance because they foresaw that this would be the impact of it. So there is a kind of humane... Christian-based, classical liberal critique of the welfare state that has got nothing to do with the ideological libertarian idea that taxation is theft. Um, so, you know, I'm a little bit concerned that... Uh, I mean, you get some people in the Conservative Party uh, who adopt that critique and they have a lot of justification on their side. I mean, everybody, the, the, the welfare reform is an issue in just about facing every Western government because of the costs in terms of taxation. Uh, it's facing the Americans. It's facing a liberal, a democratic president. Um, but then you have other people who actually don't particularly care about the poor. And, um, you know, and Ayn Rand, for example, this American writer, regarded altruism as collectivism. She thought it was actually immoral to, you know, that, that the individual, that, that you can build a good society simply on rational self-interest. And she equated helping other people with robbery. Um, and that's had quite an important impact on a lot of, you know, younger libertarians. But those who think and, and are humane will tend to adopt the classical liberal critique of the welfare state, not the libertarian one, which is simply, you know, uh, abolish it.